Hello? I'm trying to say that I am not John Del Huse. Um, my name is Phil, and I'm a resident at Church on Mill. I'm working with the International Student Ministry. And I have the privilege to introduce Dr. John Del Huse, who will be preaching God's word while Chuck is away. What's that? Can you... Oh, yes, children, you're dismissed. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever done that. You're dismissed, children. <laughs> um, Yes, so um, John is a professor of New Testament at Phoenix Seminary, where I'm a student. And so I can say from personal experience that uh, he's one of the rare teachers who is not only an excellent communicator of truth and knowledge, but also um, genuinely cares for the souls and shepherds the souls of his students. So I've been looking forward to this as soon as I heard that you'd be preaching here. And we're very fortunate to have John sharing the word with us today. John, will you come up and... Take it away. I'm uh, really, really happy to be here. And I want to affirm uh, Pastors Chuck uh, and Tad for uh, teaching you the whole counsel of God. To be honest, this would not be a passage I would have uh, immediately thought of uh, when invited to preach. And frankly, I'm glad that the children have left. Uh, um, it's a heavy passage and yet it's a huge privilege for me to to take you through it Uh, we are uh, working through the book of Habakkuk and if you are a guest uh, we have a pew Bible for you in front of you it's on page 541 but we're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 1 through 15 When I was asked to uh, reflect on this text and and preach it, I thought back, when was the last time I taught Habakkuk? And it was actually 22 years ago when I was uh, involved in a college ministry on ASU's campus. Um, And the reason we selected this book was because even though Habakkuk is writing so many centuries ago, he's asking questions that the youth are asking today. Um, one huge question is, is, is where is God uh, amidst all this trial and chaos? And so we found it to be very helpful back then. And uh, it's a joy for me to come back after 20-some years and uh, work through this passage. And so Habakkuk is an interesting book because it opens up with these prophetic um, oracles. But then in chapter 3, our passage, uh, he switches genres. And so there's sort of a a genre bending going on here where he switches into a form that is very familiar to us. Um, It's very much like a psalm. And so he opens by saying that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. And so the little title there breaks up the flow of the text, makes us slow down a little bit, and we need to think about what we're about to hear. This is the only place in the whole Bible where the words prayer and prophet occur together in the same verse. And by mentioning Habakkuk as a prophet, it's helping us to prepare our eyes to see a vision. Habakkuk is gonna give us a visual that he's gonna want us to enter into so that our faith can can be formed. And in fact, Habakkuk had 
promised just such a vision way back in chapter 2, but he waited until the end of the book to give it. We're also told that this is a prayer. And the Hebrew word for prayer is tefillah. And tefillah normally is a prayer of request. And so Habakkuk is representing his people, and he's about to give a request to his God. We don't know what the word shigianoth means. That's why they just transliterated it in your Bible uh, from a Hebrew word. But the Greek translators, before the time of Christ, looked at that word and they, re and they translated it as hoda, or an ode. And so they looked at this as an ode. Um, an ode is a lyric poem addressed to a person. In this case, it's a poem that takes the form of a prayer addressed to God. And it has an elevated style to it. And so we're going to expect some very striking imagery as we're making our way through it. And so what we get, in fact, in verse 2 is the request that the prophet makes. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. You see, he's probably attending worship in the temple. The temple is going to be destroyed soon enough when the Babylonians come in 586 B.C., and yet scriptures, the, the ancient scriptures of Israel, were read there in a worshipful context. And so Habakkuk, again, representing the people, says, I've heard the stories. <laughs> I know the epic, the big story of Israel, Lord. We've heard it. And now I want you to, to do some of that. <laughs> do some of those great works that we heard about so long ago, Lord. And so he says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That phrase, in the midst of the years, is what theologians call a liminal space. That's a space that so many of us are in right now, where we've taken the first step of the journey to God, and yet we haven't reached the promised land. You know, this is a place where, um, when I was working with college students, I found that many of my um, international students knew this very, very well, where they would come <clears throat> from, their, from their homes, from their cultures, from distant countries, and they would come and they would spend some time here in Tempe at ASU. And they were homesick for where they came from. But they were also in a place of transition, meaning they were students. This wasn't the, the destination of their journey. And so they were going to spend some years here with us. But then they were going to go on. And, and that can be hard. In fact, most college students understand that, that tension where you, you're growing up and you've left what was familiar to you, but you still haven't found your career. You haven't found your families. You haven't found your husband or your wife. And, and so you're in this liminal space, this, this place in between. And sometimes when we're in those places, we can suffer from discouragement. Our hearts can break. 
And we can want to maybe fall back on what is familiar, but not take that step, that courageous step um, in faith. And so here Habakkuk is expressing um, that frustration. And so he goes on, and here he's going to give us the actual um, vision that he was given. And this, this vision has two parts to it. And um, I'm sorry, I'm a professor. I've got to do a little professorial thing here. Um, I feel bad. Some of you spend all week listening to professors, and then Pastor Chuck brings one in on a Sunday. Uh, <clears throat> and yet this prayer, this vision is so beautiful. It's, it's so well-constructed artistically, led by the Spirit, Habakkuk makes a really profound statement. And you can see some of this artistry in the way that he constructs this vision into two parts. The first part, we're going to call God's March, okay? God's March. And it goes from verses 3 to 7. And what you'll notice is that in verse 3, Habakkuk mentions these places, specific places. He mentions Taman, Mount Paran, and then when you go down to verse 7, he mentions specific places again, Kushan and the land of Midian. These were key places that Israel passed on their journey out of Egypt in the Exodus into the Promised Land when, with God's help, they were able to vanquish their enemies. And so what Habakkuk is doing is he's taking the pieces of their epic story, the story that the people knew so well, and those pieces are now being refashioned into a vision of what God is going to do in the future. And we call this God's march. It's, he says, God came from Taman. And there's a little tweak here where... When he makes the initial request, he uses the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh. That is the special covenant name that God gave to Moses, right? And so there he begins his prayer with a very intimate word for God, right? This is a word that only the Israelites and God used with each other. But when he switches to verse, when he moves to verse 3, he switches words for God. And here he uses the word aloha. Aloha. That is God's cosmic word. That is who God is to the nations. And so here he's switching to a more generalized work of God in terms of how he's going to hold the world accountable for their behavior. And he says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Salah. There are three salahs in this prayer. And we see that Hebrew word in the Psalter, in the Psalms. And the, its function is to have the hearers slow down and imagine. To not simply run through the words, but to actually allow them to inform their soul. And so, he wants us to see this dramatic moment. You see, just before this passage, God is seated on his throne directly above the temple. And everybody is silent. We just sang a song after reading Isaiah this morning, which features God seated 
on a throne, right? <clears throat> Reigning over all things, at peace. But here, God is getting up, and he's gathering his forces, and he's gathering on the border of his enemies, about to pounce. And so it's a really dramatic moment. God is on the march. And when generals would go out to conquer, they would send out signals to the people saying, you better watch out, I'm coming. You've got a chance to repent. You have a chance to come into my authority peacefully, or I'm going to have to flex my muscle, and I'm going to have to take this region by force. And so God gives some signals to the people. We read in verse 3 that his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. You see, that's the proper response to God. When God demonstrates his splendor, his glory, creation responds in praise. My brother who gave the uh, prayer, I, I don't know your name, but um, he alluded to this truth. Let me read you a little piece from Psalm 8 where the word is the same in Hebrew. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your splendor or glory above the heavens. When Jesus cites that psalm, he said that that was intended to evoke praise from children. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Right? When we look out at God's splendor, it should humble us. It should silence us. And the Son of Man, that you care for him. But oftentimes, that's not enough. People look out at the world and they don't see the signal. And so he goes on. He says, his brightness was like the light, verse 4. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, and before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Those two words probably refer to demons. And that doesn't get conveyed in the translation very well. And yet, in the biblical worldview, God allows demonic events to take place in the world, oftentimes to bring about suffering, and yet nothing happens outside of his authority. People were terrified of demons in the ancient world, just as many people today are still terrified by the unknown. They're terrified about cancer. They're terrified about things that they're not able to control in their life. And, and here Habakkuk evokes all that fear <laughs> and says that God is sovereign over all of that. He stood and measured the earth. God is transcendent. 
God is able to stand in such a way that he's able to take out a little measuring tape and measure (laughs) the earth that we occupy. He's not bound by it. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So here Habakkuk is looking to natural phenomena like earthquakes, yeah, earthquakes, right? And he's saying that earthquakes can be a sign of God's power. Mountains that seem to be so stable aren't. God stands behind all of that. He says, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian um, did tremble. All right, and so that is God's march. Now, in verses 8 through 15, the second section of this prayer, God attacks. Again, we've got this repetition at the beginning and the end of the unit, making it its own statement, like a paragraph. If you look at verse 8, you see that Habakkuk mentions rivers in verse, and he also mentions the sea and horses. And then if you go down to verse 15, which is the last verse of our passage, he mentions the sea and the horses and the mighty waters. Do you all see that? Yeah, thank you. And so why, why mention water? To the ancients, water was a place of chaos. It was especially terrifying. And they associated all kinds of malevolent forces with it. In fact, in the Mediterranean, people would not even go on ships during the winter months because the sea was so violent. And so here, again, Habakkuk is giving us this this image of God as this transcendent, all-powerful being who stands over everything. And he says in verse 8, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Ezekiel was able to see this. In his opening vision, he saw the cherubim, these terrifying angelic beings that looked like serpents, and yet they had the faces of a human, and they had the, the face of, a, of, a, of an ox, and it had the face of an eagle, and the face of a lion, and they formed wheels upon which a chariot housed God's glory as he went out into the world to conquer. And so here Habakkuk is being given a similar vision It's a vision like what Isaiah saw with the seraphim, who are these cobra-like angels, (laughs) terrifying, um, expressing God's incredible power. He says, you strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Salah. So there's another dramatic pause. He hasn't pounced yet. And yet, 
the armies have been assembled, the weapons have been gathered, you split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high, the sun and moon stood still in their place. Creation gets it. <laughs> they know their creator. And when God demonstrates his power, they yield. And they acknowledge his authority. That language of the sun and the moon stalling, do you see how that evokes Joshua? Right? The great events in that epic story are now being recapitulated at the end of time. He says, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, or you could translate that Messiah. You went out for the salvation of your people, your anointed. You vindicated them. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. It's one of the most brutal images attributed to God in the Bible. And Habakkuk will not let us just skip it. Salah. Salah. Do you know that this month, um, Arkansas is going to execute eight inmates? But they've run into a problem because according to state law, they need six eyewitnesses and nobody wants to go. Who really would want to see something like that? It's hard. And yet Habakkuk is requiring us to look at a God who is slow to anger. We prayed about that this morning. Praise God, he's slow to anger. He waits for centuries, millennia. <laughs> he is slow to anger. He is compassionate. God is love, amen. But God is God and must ultimately deal with evil. And while many will repent, and while much of creation will celebrate the reversal of the fall, there will be forces that will not bow. And at some point, God is going to have to demonstrate his wrath. And Habakkuk makes us watch it.
Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. He uses their own weapons against them. Who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Thank you, Pastor Chuck. For <laughs> I do not read Habakkuk 3 very often. And I wonder if that's a part of my culture that I grew up in. Our first hymn book as Christians, it's over 1,600 years old, 1,700 years old. And it's called the Book of Odes. And it's in the Septuagint. Um, it's, it's, it, it, it's a collection of psalms and also prayers in the New Testament. It's called the Book of Odes. And I was surprised the other day when preparing for this sermon to find that Habakkuk 3, which is an ode, is right there in that book. And why that's significant is because the Book of Odes was a collection that the early Christians would recite over and over and over again. So for me, while it's been maybe 20 years since I've meditated on Habakkuk 3, for the early Christians, they recited that ode on a weekly basis. And I think about what would that do to my worldview as a Christian if I was required to go back and recite Habakkuk 3 over and over and over again. It's so appropriate for us today. We live in a liminal age, a time of great upheaval and transition, where many people in our culture are asking, where is God? And the thing about being in the middle is that sometimes um, the doubts and the distractions become so powerful that they can extinguish faith. And we're seeing this happen um, throughout Europe, and we're beginning to see it happen here in the United States um, in striking numbers. Albert Camus, uh, the French existentialist, um, a very sad atheist. I don't think he wanted to go to that place. And yet the liminality so pressed in on him that he lost faith. He describes his life as being in a universe suddenly divested of illusions and lights. Man feels alien, a stranger. His exile is without remedy since he is deprived of the memory of a lost home or the hope of a promised Many find themselves there today. There are many what I call operational atheists in our culture today. These are people who may believe in God,
but it has absolutely no impact on their life. These would be the spring breakers, not to be too mean to them. And yet, the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, tells us that the world around us, creation is a veil. It's a veil. It's, it's real. It's substantial. But it's symbolic. It's meant to take us somewhere. It's meant to reveal the creator. You know, when I got married 22 years ago, and my wife was introduced to me, who's here this morning, she was veiled. And I got the symbolism of it, but when that veil was lifted, it got a lot more interesting. <laughs> the veil, amen, brother, the veil is important. But it's not the marriage. Creation is a veil. Habakkuk tells us that God is present. He has gathered his forces. He is imminent. And yet, he has chosen in his mercy to veil his power. And that gives us an opportunity. You may say, God, why are you veiled? Show yourself to me the way Habakkuk asked. What I have found is that God withdraws behind the veil for two main reasons. God is veiled to purify our faith. We learn that in the book of Habakkuk. On this journey of life, God wants to deepen our faith and trust in him. And that's what we find in the book of Habakkuk, is the prophet takes a position of faith, and he's willing to wait and trust the word of God. But God is also veiled because human beings are partially blinded by their sin. People cannot see God because they are staring at idols which have captured their attention. And there's one idol that I'm especially concerned about in the context of the university where we are. Some time ago, a book was published by sociologists that looked at the faith of young people, and they said that most American youth hold to what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. That is that most of us believe that God exists, a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life like a grandma. God wants people to be good and nice. Why? Because God is good and nice. God is nice. Friends, the passage we just read does not reveal a nice God. Yet, God is real. God is, is nice. He wants us to be nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. For many of us, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. 
God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Right? So church attendance continues to fall. We come to God on our terms. God is like a parent that we can phone when we need money. We run into a trial. Good people go to heaven when they die, and most people are good. Maybe Osama bin Laden is in hell, but most people are good. And yet the passage that we just read shows a God who's going to judge the nations. Sometimes um, I hear that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of Jesus Christ. But the God of Habakkuk is the God of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, love your enemy and turn the other cheek. But when he gave those teachings, he never divorced it from the fact that God was going to one day hold all creation accountable. Yes, we are to love our enemy. Why? Because God loves them and wants them to be saved. And yet Jesus puts his teaching in the context of Noah preaching just before the flood. And so there is still a day ahead of us, what Habakkuk calls the day of trouble. In AD 70, the Romans came in and destroyed the temple just like the Babylonians did in 586 BC. That's in our history. That's over. But Habakkuk is looking ahead to a day of Yahweh, which is yet to come even for us. And when the book of Revelation, which is the last book in our Bible, talks about this great day of trouble, it describes Jesus coming, the same Jesus who told us to love our enemy, the same Jesus who willingly gave up his life for sinners. That same Jesus is going to come again, but his robe is going to, quote, be dripped in blood. John says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, Revelation 19. And when he comes, the corpses are going to pile and all the birds will be gorged with their flesh. That's the word of God. God's wrath is brutal and total, and it is complete as his love. And so what do we take from this? Being nice and fair is good, but the purpose of life is to be a faithful witness until that day of trouble. The purpose of life is to repent, to get right with God, to acknowledge his authority over our life, and to provide hope to the people in this world who are lost, but to remind them that this is not the eternal, what we're in. <laughs> this is passing away. We're just on a journey together. And yet, God has provided an opportunity for us to be healed, 
to be, to be forgiven and to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. The reason why God is going to ultimately act someday and realize his justice is he's going to act on behalf of his people and his anointed. And so for us, we have an opportunity to join Christ, to be a part of the anointed, to be saved. Amen? If you are uh, with us this morning and you do not 